Tiki Hut Media. Pop the top on your favorite beer or whatever you drink from Tiki Hut Media. This is Soul Ramblings with Jerry Wicker. Happy New Year. Got my beer popped open and ready to start a brand new year of Soul Ramblings Podcast. And be sure to head over to the Soul Ramblings Podcast Substack page. Link is in the show notes. And put your email in that box thingy there. At least 70% of the time, you'll be glad you did. (laughs) Seriously, though, nobody, nobody, me included, wants to get more email. And I do appreciate the privilege of you inviting me into your inbox when you subscribe on Substack. As a free subscriber, you won't have to worry about missing anything because you'll get updates in your inbox, including blog posts, Sunday ramblings, devotionals on Sunday, and alerts when a new episode of the podcast drops. You can even listen to the new episode in the email. Soul Ramblings is listener supported. So if you can afford it, would you please consider a paid subscription to help keep us going? I would really appreciate it. It's only $5 a month, or you can do an annual subscription for $50. If you cannot afford it, no explanation is required. No worries, no problem. Continue to read, listen, and engage for free. Either way, you can always see and hear everything. So subscribe on our Substack page, grab a beer, come on in. All are welcome, and I want to thank you for being here. A bit of good news happened over the past couple of months. Actually, at the end of November, we are officially now, I've been looking forward to getting on this platform, we are now on Pandora. So if you are a Pandora user, you can find us over there on Pandora Podcast. Just go and search for Soul Ramblings Podcast. It'll pop right up and you can listen there. My, I have always been a Spotify user. Beth, my wife, prefers to use Pandora to listen to music. And so I'd always wanted to get on Pandora. And through some negotiations, we finally are on Pandora. I'm so happy about that partnership. And as we began a new year, this particular, I found this scripture and I I thought it was an excellent one. As we have just ended 2023 and we are now in 2024 And we're in that transition week of a brand new year. Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. We'll jump right into that scripture. Lord, open our hearts and minds so that by the power of your Holy Spirit, as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Today, reading from the New Revised Standard Version, When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, 
And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. Then, as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple but worshipped there, with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And the reason I think this is good, this is a good scripture to read for the end of one year as we began another, is because it's the story of an old man holding a baby in his arms and saying, now I can go. And it reminds me of nothing so much as one of those cartoons you might see that show the outgoing year is this old man and the incoming year is a newborn baby. And I imagine there was something about the look on his face too. We're not told this, but I imagine there's this look on the face that was perfect as if he could finally hand off the burden of responsibility to the next generation because Simeon was old maybe not as old as Anna, but he was old enough to remember how things used to be before the Romans conquered Israel in 63 BC. I'm guessing he was probably in his 70s or 80s when all of this took place. He would have been a young man when Pompey and his army laid siege to the city of Israel. He would have heard stories about how the Romans finally broke through the walls of the city and killed 12,000 Jews and how they did what was even worse than that by desecrating the temple. Apparently, Pompey himself walked into the Holy of Holies in his muddy combat boots. No one was supposed to go in there, after all, not any Jew and certainly not any Gentile, only the high priest, and then only once a year on the Day of Atonement. Pompey had desecrated the holiest place in Israel, and the Jews would never forget it. And if I'm right, Simeon would have been a young man in those days, maybe too young to fight the Romans, but not too young to remember So in this scripture in Luke, it says that he was one of those looking for the consolation of Israel. Consolation is defined as the comfort received after a loss. Simeon was looking for comfort. He was clinging to the promise of a Messiah, someone who would rout the Romans, set things right in Israel and sit on the throne of David. He himself had been promised that he would not see death before he had seen the Messiah. And then Joseph and Mary come into the temple with their newborn son, and somehow, without any angels singing, glory to God in the highest, Simeon knew that this was the one. He took the baby into his arms. Now, Lord, 
Now I can die in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon knew that Israel was going to be okay. Christ the Savior was born. But let's turn our thoughts towards ourselves here. I wonder if there are any Simeons or Annas among us today, people who can remember the good old days of the church and who may be wondering what's going to become of it. If your church has been around long enough, I'm guessing there was a time when the building was full on Sunday mornings, or nearly anyway, because there was a time in this country back in the 50s when going to church was simply the Sunday morning thing to do. Uh, The war was over, soldiers and sailors came home and married their high school sweethearts, they moved into houses with white picket fences, and they began to have babies, lots of babies. That's why that time period is called the baby boom. Those parents wanted their babies to grow up in the church just like they did. They came by the hundreds, by the thousands, and soon churches were scrambling to find enough nursery space and then enough Sunday school space for all these babies, all these children. And because their parents were coming to church too, they needed bigger sanctuaries. They built them or added additional services. And for a little while, at least those sanctuaries were full or nearly full. And then for a number of reasons, things began to change. I read a book last year by one of my favorite authors, Will Williman. He wrote a book with Stanley Harawas called Resident Aliens some time ago. And in that book, they suggest that things began to change not in 63 BC, but on a Sunday evening in 1963. He writes this. This is a quote from Resident Aliens. Then in Greenville, South Carolina, in defiance of the state's time-honored blue laws, the Fox Theater opened on Sunday. Seven of us, regular attenders of the Methodist Youth Fellowship, made a pact to enter the front door of the church, be seen, then quietly slip out the back door and join John Wayne at the Fox Theater. That evening has come to represent a watershed in the history of Christendom, South Carolina style. On that night, Greenville, South Carolina, the last pocket of resistance to secularity in the Western world, served notice that it would no longer be a prop for the church. There would be no more free passes, no more free rides. Willoughby says that while it may seem trivial to date the collapse of Christendom to that Sunday evening in 1963, he would also say that before that night, he didn't have a choice between going to church and going to the movies. The church was the only show in town on Sundays. The town closed down. He goes on to write, you couldn't even buy a gallon of gas. The most exciting thing that happened all day were the traffic jams that might have happened when everybody was trying to get to Sunday school. And some of you can probably remember when things were like that in your town, but they're not that way anymore, are they? You have to wonder what happened. Maybe Williman is right. Maybe it's because the Fox Theater opened on a Sunday night. Or maybe it's because everything else started opening on Sundays. Bowling alleys, grocery stores, shopping centers, you name it. Maybe it's because the baby boom eventually came to an end. Or because so many of those babies grew up and went off to fight in Vietnam. Maybe it's because inventions like air conditioning and TV made it a little too easy to just stay at home on Sunday mornings. Whatever the reasons, the cultural forces that used to push people through the front doors of the church began to pull them back out again, 
And we entered a period that it was in the late 60s and early 70s when sanctuaries began to empty out as if somebody had pulled the plug in the bathtub and church leaders began to wring their hands and wonder what was wrong. How can we fix it? It was about that time that a couple of youth ministers in Chicago decided to start a new church. And they started by doing a survey, by going around and asking people why they weren't going to church anymore. The people said the music was outdated, sermons weren't relevant, they didn't like to dress up on Sundays, all that sort of thing. So Bill Hybels and Dave Hombo started a church called Willow Creek, and it met in a theater where people listened to contemporary Christian music, sermons that were edgy and relevant, dramas that brought home the central point, and best of all, they didn't have to dress up. The church was a phenomenal success. In fact, within just a few years, some 15,000 people were going to church services that weren't exactly Christian worship in the way that we know it, but were certainly what was then termed seeker-friendly. Soon, everybody was trying to imitate the success of Willow Creek. The so-called church growth movement produced community churches in almost every city, featuring contemporary worship that included live bands and singers who performed like pop stars, gifted speakers who strolled out onto the platform wearing golf shirts, who peppered their sermons with real-life illustrations and talked about things like how to deal with the stresses of everyday life and how to raise a happy family and happy and healthy children. Some of these churches used drama, others used video, but all of them tried to break from the old way of doing church, from the hymn books and prayer books, the pipe organs and priests, and again, people responded. They began to leave their old churches and go to these new ones. What some of us missed in all this was the shift from a model in which people came to church out of duty, devotion, or habit to a model in which we tried to make coming to church more attractive to them. It's a subtle shift, but you can guess what happens when you're trying to make coming to church attractive. You start thinking about what people like and how you can give it to them. Do they like coffee and donuts? Well, let's give it to them. They like contemporary worship? Let's give it to them. They like preaching that relates to everyday life? Let's give it to them. The problem, of course, is that some churches are better at this than others. Some have more resources than others. And so, a few churches in town became mega churches while the rest simply struggled to survive. Now, don't misunderstand. I don't have anything against relevant preaching. I don't have anything against contemporary worship. And I certainly don't have anything against coffee and donuts. But when you make up your mind that you will do whatever it takes to get people to come to church, then you will get just the kind of church you deserve. A congregation of fickle religious consumers who will leave you as soon as the church next door opens up an espresso bar. Here's some truth for you. There are some people who are not going to come to church no matter what you do. In 1960, roughly half the U.S. population was going to church on a regular basis. By 1971, that number had dropped to 41%. In 2002, the number had dropped to 31%. And in 2005, a team of sociologists did the same survey, but used a different question. Instead of asking people, do you attend church regularly? They asked, did you go to church last Sunday? 
and this time the percentage fell from 31% to 22% of the population. Last number I heard was 17%, but that was a few years ago, and well before the onset of the global pandemic three years ago, or four years ago now. So I I hope right now you have plotted a mental graph, and if you've seen anything, you've seen that if things continue for the next 50 years as as they have for the last 50 years, church going in America will drop right off the chart. And I was talking with a fellow who is a pastor here not too long ago of another denomination. He and I were talking about the drop in attendance. He said that, you know, church attendance had been dropping. These statistics I just read you show that it's been going on since before the pandemic. It's just the pandemic magnified it and exacerbated the problem. And in England, for example, which seems to be 20 to 25 years ahead of us in terms of secularity, an estimated 3% of the population goes to church on Sunday. 3%. And those waves have been washing up on our shores for years now, which makes me think this is the perfect time to re-examine the church's mission and purpose. One of the questions we need to ask, is our mission and purpose completely wrapped up in our building? I sure hope not. I've seen a church that would not give up its big, beautiful building, even when the congregation had dwindled down to almost nothing. And as a result, every dollar they took in, every ounce of energy they spent, went toward that building. It became their mission. The neighborhood around them was neglected, so they could take care of the building. And oh, that building was beautiful. It was one of the most beautiful places I'd ever seen. But it was like a glittering edifice built on top of a trash heap. Homeless people sleeping on the front porch and church members stepping over them to go inside and worship in that beautiful space. It really makes me wonder what they were worshiping. And then, of course, there's this whole thing of do we need to stay traditional or do we need to go contemporary or is blended service the way to go? And back in November, I heard an interview on another podcast with Kat Von D. She's a tattoo and makeup mogul, and she's speaking up about her newfound conversion to Christianity. And she shared that her church is not what you might expect. Instead of a large church with hundreds of people and shining lights, her church is much smaller and more traditional, which is just what she was looking for. She said this, I'm seeking more traditionalism. I want to worship. I don't want to go to a concert. You know, we all dress nice when we go to church. That's our own personal thing. This is sacred space. And I feel like other outlets and stuff just don't really align with what I'm looking for. You know, I feel like God spit me out on the doorsteps of the most perfect church for me. So for many Christians, it was shocking to hear that anyone like her under the age of 60 would seek out a traditional church. Over the last several years, there was a movement of sorts among young Christians who viewed traditional Christianity as backward, out of touch, irrelevant, ineffective. Of course, this isn't true of all young adults. A growing number, including Von D. herself, are beginning to reevaluate the role of tradition in Christian life and I want to say that's a good thing. For many, 
the word traditional is something you just don't say if you're discussing how to organize a worship service, put together a sermon series, or reach the lost. As a matter of fact, when I was lead minister of a church in Florida, we did not use the word traditional for our worship service. We called it a classic worship service. Different word meant the same thing. Many people in the modern church think traditional methods are irrelevant methods. We've gotten to the point that in modern Christian practice where the word traditional has become almost a, a, a dirty word. In many ways, it comes from a hatred toward legalism and moralism that we've associated with our church experience uh, experiences. I mean, I have been a part of, not necessarily a member of, but I have seen these fundamentalist churches and that fundamentalist mindset was in some of the churches of my youth. It was then that I started to look for something other than traditional. The particular church I grew up in was morally overbearing. Communication was dry and spiritually confusing. Based on that experience, I didn't believe God was a father as much as a disciplinarian. From that point forward, I began to really have a bad taste in my mouth for legalism and moralism and my own understanding of tradition. Traditional Christianity became a synonym for legalistic Christianity. But then I began to see my view of tradition as a problem. Tradition isn't just an interesting piece of history that Christians can learn from. It can be a building block and a mature expression of faith in Christ. Tradition, regardless of which tradition you associate with, I happen to associate with the United Methodist tradition. It offers important practices and theology to help grow our understanding of truth, accountability, and the dynamic beauty of the coming kingdom of God. We recite the Apostles' Creed. We recite the Lord's Prayer as part of our tradition. We have communion at our particular church every Sunday morning at the end of service. Those are traditions, and it's really helped in my growing and my understanding, and I have found several reasons to embrace, not reject, tradition. One of the more important roles tradition plays in the life of a Christian is in giving us a fuller understanding of exactly where our beliefs come from. If we're honest, we like to believe that our ideas of truth and doctrine are born from an objective reading of Scripture. While the idea of this notion is pleasant and sounds good, it's not entirely accurate. In so many respects, the things that we value as theologically, spiritually, and emotionally true come to us from one tradition or another. Tradition offers us the beautiful practice of passing things down. We would not have many of the doctrines, creeds, and core truths we hold to be foundational if it were not for tradition. Now, this doesn't mean we automatically accept everything we're handed, but it gives us a basis of understanding to start from and dig into. To reject tradition as an unimportant part of Christian life is to place ourselves outside of accountability and thinking we can completely disassociate ourselves from any expression of a particular tradition is not only naive, it's arrogant. It says we're not concerned with entering a conversation with the past about our beliefs. We would rather lock ourselves up in our theological fortresses and refuse to lower the drawbridge. Rejecting tradition is sometimes an attempt to place ourselves outside of critique. The kingdom of God is dynamic, 
colorful, transcendent, multicultural. There's going to be a myriad of traditions represented in the new heaven and new earth, and individualistic Christianity will fall away. If we embrace the role of tradition in our lives, we are embracing the beauty of community. People from all creeds, colors, and traditions have a seat at the table. We would all do well to understand that we all operate out of tradition. We're fooled if we think we can avoid it. The question becomes then, will we belong to a tradition that opens itself up to the beauty of interaction with others, or will we remain closed off in an effort to be more in touch or effective? The most effective means of gospel ministry come when we are humble enough to admit that we need the help of those from other Christian traditions, and we need to understand where we've come from to understand where we're going. We need the church more than we think. Okay, I got off track there, but uh, let's get back to Simeon. (laughs) He was old, remember? Old enough to remember when what Israel had been like before the Romans came, to remember what it had been like when it was free. Those were the good old days. And Simeon and others like him had been praying for deliverance ever since. When Joseph and Mary walked into the temple with that baby in their arms, Simeon said, Now, Lord, now I can die in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. What would it take for you to say that about your church? What kind of reassurance would you need that things are going to be okay? Is it enough to know that God is with you? And if God is with you, all will be well. The truth is that the holiest moments in Israel's history happened while they were in the wilderness, worshiping God in a tent. The truth is that the most sacred scriptures were written down and preserved while they were in exile in Babylon. There's really no way to know what might happen to your church in the days ahead, but I believe this. If God is with you, then, in the words of Julian of Norwich, all shall be well and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. And so, I hope you've learned that the church is more than a building, and that its future rests not in the weekly attendance and giving figures, but in the hands of the one old Simeon met in the temple that day, Christ the Savior. Glory to God. Amen. Wherever you're listening to Soul Ramblings podcast today, if you would go and click subscribe, you will never miss a new episode of Soul Ramblings podcast. Of course, you can always subscribe over on Substack. Link is in the show notes. And remember, we are now on Pandora. We're also still on Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast. We're on Audible, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio. We're on a bunch of different platforms, but we are so happy to be on Pandora. And be sure to reach out and get social with us, either on Facebook or Instagram. We have links to those pages in the show notes of this episode as well. You can always give us feedback on our email, soulramblingspodcast at gmail.com. I want to thank you for the gift and privilege of your time today and leave you with my favorite Bible verse, Philippians 4.8. This week I'm reading from, actually, uh, this was several years ago, a retiring pastor gave me a copy of the Lamza, L-A-M-S-A, translation of the Bible. It's from the Ancient Eastern Manuscripts, and it's an interesting translation. I invite you to look it up on Amazon or see if you can find a copy of it and check it out. It's a very good translation. 
And Philippians 4.8 reads this way in the Lamza translation. Finally, my brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honest, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is any praise, think about these things. We'll see you back here next week on Soul Ramblings Podcast. Until then, thank you for being here. I'm Jerry Wicker. Grace, peace, cheers. Thanks for listening to Soul Ramblings with Jerry Wicker. Download new episodes every week. And if you haven't already, subscribe and be sure to leave us a rating and review. Soul Ramblings is a Tiki Hut Media production. Oh,